Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So like I said, we're just finishing uh, 1 Timothy chapter, uh, the first letter, and we're in chapter 6 this morning. And uh, as you may have known, if you've been following our study, um, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. It's known as one of the pastoral epistles. And Timothy at the time was in Ephesus. And at the very beginning of Paul's letter, this whole letter is basically an encouragement to Paul uh, to encourage him to hang in there, not to leave Ephesus, just to, to remain there and uh, to keep keep on soldiering, to, to fight the good fight. And uh, so Timothy is there in Ephesus, and we talked a lot about the issues that Timothy himself, uh, you know, dealt with. He was a younger guy, and he was filling the shoes of Paul, who was the founder of the church in Ephesus. I couldn't imagine, like, somebody saying, hey, would you fill in for Billy Graham now, you know, or something like that. It's like, me? Like, you know... Those are big shoes to fill. Well, I'm sure that's how Timothy felt filling in for Paul. And so we we talked about all those issues. But one thing we didn't really talk about was Ephesus itself, the city. And uh, anyways, Ephesus, it's estimated that the population of the city alone was 225,000 inhabitants. Now, Ephesus had lots of cities nearby so, you know, it wasn't just Ephesus and then there's nothing around. There were a lot of other cities around by that were of similar size. And so it's estimated in Asia Minor there's over like 4 million people. So this is a, it's a metropolis, uh, to say the least. And Ephesus itself, Ephesus itself was the capital of the province of Asia. And it was known as a free city. Now, what that meant by being a free city, of course, the Roman Empire was in control of everything at that, in that day. And being a free city, uh, the Romans allowed uh, Ephesus to, to maintain some autonomy. They could kind of, uh, they were allowed to, to kind of rule themselves and to, and to deal with their own financial issues and all that stuff, as long as things didn't get out of hand. And you recall an Acts when Demetrius the silversmith raised up a ruckus and Paul and his disciples and some of the men that were with him got dragged into the arena. And the whole city of Ephesus was in an uproar. And remember, the, the town clerk came in there and said, Hey, 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 you know, we're, we're in danger of bringing down the hand of Rome against us. I mean, I'm paraphrasing very loosely. But basically, they're saying, Hey, don't upset the apple cart because right now we're a free city is what he's basically getting across to them. And we don't want Rome to come in because Rome didn't like unrest and they would crush it severely. And so that being a free city, so it's amazing. You get this whole mob mentality in this, in this arena that wants to just, you know, they want to tear apart these, these disciples, these, these men of God, these Christians. And hearing that was enough to quell the whole crowd. So it was a big deal being a free city. Not only that, but they had um, agricultural, plenty agricultural production. It was a very fertile area there around there. And also, there was thriving commerce. Uh, There's some great travel roads right around there. So there was a lot of, of selling and buying and trading and, and things being shipped to and fro, uh, to and fro, <laughs> fro whatever, around, um, around Ephesus and, uh, you know, Corinth too, of course. Corinth was not too far from there. So it was a thriving community. Lots of money being exchanged. There was a lot of wealth there. Not only that, but there was a temple of Diana there. And, uh, the Temple of Diana, the properties 
uh, I was reading up on this, the properties of the Temple of Diana at Ephesus included rock quarries, pastures, salt pans, which I didn't know what those were, but basically those are dry like salt ponds where they can, they can extract salt from. And salt was a, was a commodity there in that day and age. Fisheries and extensive estates. And then, you know, we read about Demetrius the silversmith. I talked about him in Acts. And there were people like Demetrius who were making merchandise off of the Temple of Diana. So they were selling the little trinkets or the little idols. And so there was all that to say is there was a lot of money in Ephesus. So it was a very, very wealthy city in Paul's day. And it's interesting, this last chapter, chapter 6, talks, Paul talks about riches. He mentions riches once. He mentions the rich or being rich three times. And he says the word richly another time. So that was what I think in this last chapter, this is what was foremost in Paul's mind. It's interesting because towards the end of this chapter, and we'll get to it a little bit later, he says, don't trust in uncertain riches. And you got to wonder if the inhabitants of Ephesus you know, what they thought at the time, their community, everything was going well financially. Everybody was had work. I'm sure there was no unemployment. I mean, it was just things were going well there. Uh, but you know what's interesting? You can't go to, well, you can go to the land. You can go and find Ephesus today, but it's not that thriving, bustling community that it once was. In fact, I read this. It says, a part of the site of ancient Ephesus, the once famous city, it's now occupied by a small Turkish village. So that uncertainty of riches, you know. I mean, back in that day, they probably thought Ephesus would never end. The economy would never collapse. They were going to go on forever, you know, think it's just going to get better and better and better. And now there's just a little fishing village there, you know, or a little village. And I kind of look at our own country and our own culture. And we're a very wealthy country. Of course, I think some of that's getting shifted now with some of the politics that's going on. But... In reality, to the rest of the world, we are still fabulously wealthy compared to a majority of other people on this planet. And, uh, you know, the Word of God is true to us, too, not to trust in uncertain riches because you wonder if one day this is this whole land is going to be just a, a desolate place. Um, could be. Well, along with the very wealthy, there were some very poor people, and they were slaves there in Ephesus, uh, there was uh, a large number of female slaves that served in the Temple of Diana. Now, these were not the temple prostitutes that Paul talks about. These were just slaves that served uh, in the temple there. And there was estimated that there were, uh, uh, well, it does, I don't have the number here, um, how many there was. But the Roman Empire, uh, to keep their economy going, they needed 500,000 slaves annually to keep their economy going. And uh, so in Ephesus and in other cities around Asia, um, wealthy people, if you were wealthy enough, it was kind of a status symbol. You know, in our, in our day and age, it's like, you know, have a Lexus or, you know, whatever. You have a swimming pool. Whatever it is that's your status symbol in our culture. Well, in their culture, um, to show that you had, uh, you know, you had status, you had some money, you'd, you'd buy slaves. And, uh, I, you know, I was reading about slaves and stuff on slavery. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that, that uh, you know, there were Christians that were involved with that. But back then, slaves, it wasn't a, a racial thing. Um, in fact, slaves typically were captured. You know, the Romans, they would capture people. And, uh, and uh, then they were like the booty of war. And they would sell a lot of those people as slaves. If you were an orphan... 
and your parents, you know, couldn't, you know, either your parents died or you were dropped off and abandoned, those children would be raised to be slaves. And slaves, they didn't dress other than they didn't wear togas. They weren't allowed to wear togas in the Roman Empire. But they wore the other clothes that everyone else wore. So when you looked at us, you didn't know who was a slave and who wasn't a slave necessarily by just looking at people. So I thought that was kind of interesting, just tidbits about that. But anyway, so Paul starts out chapter 6 addressing slaves. And uh, they're probably the slaves who had become Christians. And so there in 1 Timothy 6, verse 1, he says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Under the yoke of uh, you know, under the yoke of, and he's referring to slavery, of course, literal slavery in Paul's day. But that word under the yoke or that phrase under the yoke means being in a hard and a disagreeable condition. And I imagine that's how slaves felt. Um, so these slaves who were in a hard and disagreeable condition, who were in slavery, they were under the yoke. Paul tells them, these ones who are believers, to count their own masters worthy of all honor. And that word count means to, to lead or to command. And it, what it figuratively means is you make an, a conscious decision that you're going to honor this person who you're a slave to, your master. And it's another interesting word. That word master is the word despotes. And that word despotes is probably where we get the word despot. So if you know what a despot is, you know, it's a, it's a king or a ruler with absolute power, unlimited power. It's, they can be a tyrant or an oppressor. And so, you know, you may have good masters and you may have just tyrants that are just, they're just oppressive. It, Paul doesn't qualify it. He says, you are to count your own masters worthy of all honor. Now, of course, none of us are slaves here. You might think you're a slave to the company store or whatever, you know, that, that song that used to be, sang, used to be sung. But, um, you know, none of us are, we're getting paid for what we do. So my wife, she's a slave. She doesn't get paid for what she does. But, uh, but most of us are, are employed and, you know, we get, we, you get money for what, you're, what you do. But, you know, sometimes you can feel like a slave, I think. But, you know, regardless of that, we may not be slaves in our culture, but... Your and my circumstances can probably be defined in some cases as being hard and disagreeable. And uh, so what are we to do? Because, you know, the principle applies to us as well, even though we're not, we can't say, well, I'm not a slave. Oh, no, but the principle applies. You might be in a hard and a disagreeable condition yourself. You need to make a decision to treat your own despot with all honor. The person who's in charge of you or has authority over you. The person who may not be very fair to you or kind to you. You're to treat them. You're to consider and count them worthy of all honor. That's a conscious decision you have to make. Because sometimes they, don't, they definitely don't seem like they're worthy of it. And probably they're not. But that's not the case. Paul just says count them as worthy of all honor. Why? He says, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. So that the character of God, because you and I, we walk around with the character of God. We're, we're Christians. We're little Christs. We, we bear the name of Christ as believers. And we also follow Christ's teachings. And so, in, literally in Paul's day, the, the, the masters could look at these slaves, some who had become Christians. And, and the question is, are these Christian slaves better or worse than their non-Christian slaves? And the same would be true for you and I. 
you know, for you and I, the, the fact that we, as believers, do we have an impact on how we handle hard and disagreeable situations? How do we respond in those things? Do we give Jesus a bad name by our attitudes and our actions? And so that's the principle here. Verse 2, Paul says, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them, because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Now, I don't know about you, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around a Christian slave owner. I mean, it just, it just, it's just hard to understand. But evidently, it was a possibility in Paul's day. And uh, I read one thing, one, one place where it said, you know, when Jesus Christ came, he wasn't an anarchist. Slavery was already in full force and going on. He wasn't an anarchist, but through his teachings and through his testimony and through the lives of believers, slavery slowly started kind of just going away in nations that, that adopted Christianity. Um, so anyways... Evidently, it was possible in Paul's day to be a Christian slave owner. And although, of course, the Bible doesn't condone that or, or, or say that that's good or anything like that. But let's say you're a, a Christian slave uh, with a Christian despot. You've got a Christian master. He's, Paul says, don't despise them. And that word means to despise or disdain or to think little or nothing of. And the idea that Paul is getting across is the idea is, you know, someone who might take advantage of a fellow believer because they're in charge, they're over you, they're in authority of you. So maybe because they're a believer, you can like not work as hard because they understand, you know, they, they understand the situation. And maybe some of you might have Christian bosses. And so the, 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 the principle here is not to take advantage of that fact, not to use that relationship in the Lord that you both share to your advantage where you're not working, doing the job that you should be doing working as hard as you should be doing. He says, don't despise them, rather serve them. Why? Because they are benefited. Because you're benefiting them. You're blessing them. And they're loved by Jesus, just as you are. Later on, of course, in in, uh, Paul's letter to Ephesians, uh, Paul does a lot more, speaks a lot more about Christian masters and how they are to treat their slaves. He doesn't that do that here, but he does in, in Ephesians. But he continues on here in verse 3 and says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. If someone is teaching doctrine that contradicts what Paul is espousing, or taking Christ's words, which was the Gospels, and twisting the Scriptures to make it fit their whatever theological bent that they have, Paul says, withdraw yourself from some teachers. I like the way John Gill puts it. He says, do not come near them, have nothing to do with them, do not lay hands on them or admit them into the ministry, do not suffer them to preach or encourage them by hearing them. If in the church, cast them out, have communion with them, neither in a civil nor in a religious way, avoid all conversation with them. 
So that's what we're to do with false teachers. Just completely withdraw ourselves from them. Interesting. Even in Paul's day, you know, that wasn't even a hundred years after. It was a lot less than a hundred years after Jesus Christ uh, was crucified and, and resurrected that there was already false teachers moving in among the people and among the churches, twisting the scriptures. And Paul says, Paul's, you know, kind of gives us a clue. How do you recognize them? Well, first of all, they have spiritual pride. You know, they're the ones that have unlocked hidden truths that other teachers and ministries are, are missing. Have you ever heard that before? Someone says, you know, I've got this hidden truth. It's just been revealed to me. And, you know, and, and most, most other churches, they don't have a clue about this. But this is the truth. If you hear something like that, red flag should go off in your, in your head right away. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is, every believer has the same Holy Spirit dwelling in each one of us. And that Holy Spirit is not going to withdraw some, or hide something from you and reveal it to someone else. He's not going to do that. He's not a respecter of persons. Not only that, but these false teachers are obsessed with the words or the teachings that they twist. In fact, their teachings or their ministry hinges on that very scriptures that they twist to support it. And uh, some of them, they're probably very slick talkers. I've dealt with some that are very slick talkers. They know their doctrine down. They've got it down pretty pat, but it's twisted. You know, they, they, just, they just twist some scripture. You go, man, I never thought of the scripture quite that way. I don't think that's what it says. But they can go, they can walk circles, talk circles around some of us sometimes. But not only that, look at the fruit of their teaching. He mentions it. Envy, causing strife among believers. Reviling, in other words, others who disagree with them. Oh, they're there less. They don't know much. Uh, evil suspicions and useless wranglings. And who are these people? They're men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who are trying to profit from ministry. They're making merchandise of the believers. Because it's interesting with these false teachings, sooner or later, money is involved. And they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They're, 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 they're getting money. They're getting wealth off of this false teaching. And Paul continues here in verse 6. He says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. So godliness, of course, is great gain, but is godliness accompanied with contentment? Contentment is the key. And that word contentment, it comes from a word that means self-sufficiency. And it means, what, it, what it's referring to, it means a satisfaction within yourself. It's a state of mind, an inner calm, an inner satisfaction with your circumstances where you're free of murmuring and complaining. You're content. You're satisfied. You have that inner peace within you. Of course, the opposite would be dissatisfaction, where you have inner turmoil because you don't have what you see others have. How come I don't have what they have? And, of course, envy and jealousy creeps in then of others who, in your mind, have it better than you. Of course, if you were in their shoes, you probably wouldn't, re- you know, you, maybe if you understood what they were going through, you might, you might go, you know what, maybe I don't have it quite as bad as them or, you know. But we always look at other people and we look at what they drive or how they live or, or what jobs they have. And they go, man, Lord, why are you holding back from me? Why? You know, and and that, that creeps in. It, 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 and it, what can end up happening is we can end up being disappointed with God. And we can even start resenting him if we allow that to happen. 
Verse 7, For we have brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You know, a newborn baby, when they're born, they know nothing of wealth. They don't care about possessions. They don't care about materialism. You know, all what they are concerned with is the most basic of life's necessities. And the most basic one is food. Man, that's all they care about. They want food. Sometimes they want sleep. You know, of course, you know, I don't know if they get cold or whatever, but, but they're not, they could care less about keeping up with anybody else. That's not even in their, that's not even in their mind at that time. They're just, they're hungry. That's all they care about. The most basic necessities. And it's interesting, you know, as we, as we grow older, we start gaining all these things. Pretty soon we start looking, even as a little kid, you know, we don't care as much as a little kid. But as we get a little bit older, we become teenagers and stuff. We start looking at these other kids that are cool, you know, or they're dressed better. Or, you know, and then you get into high school and this kid, his parents bought him a car. And it's like, oh, man, you know, and and pretty soon we start comparing ourselves and our situation to those around us. But, you know, it's interesting. And I have sat with a few people that have been on their uh, on their deathbeds. And it's pretty interesting. By the time they come back to that, that full circle and they're back to, you know, they're, they're about ready to end, uh, leave this world, they pretty much leave the same way they came in. You know, they, they, the, that stuff that they once cared about, it just it's not as important anymore. They're not, they're not trying to keep up with anything. They're just concerned about that last, you know, those last few things, the most basic things in life. You know, you never see a hearse with a tow hitch. You ever? You'll never see. Because you're, you're never going to see a, a hearse pulling a trailer full of possessions. Right? You can't take anything with us. And it's true. It's such a true statement. You can't take riches with you, but you know what? And we'll find this out a little bit later. You can send it on ahead of you. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Of course, we're talking about spiritual riches. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. You know, the Bible doesn't condemn money or riches, and that's something that some people sometimes get mixed up. Abraham, fabulously wealthy man, a godly man. God blessed him. God never condemned him for his riches. In fact, God just showered him with blessings. Abraham was very wealthy in his day. Solomon, of course, the wealthiest person that ever lived. And Joseph of Arimathea, he was a very wealthy person as well. Paul is not saying here that the rich fall into temptation and a snare, but he says, but those who desire to be rich. And I think it goes back to that inner satisfaction or that lack of satisfaction, that that lack of contentment, that inner contentment. They desire to become wealthy, and that becomes their goal, their focus, and their obsession. And I don't think he's only speaking of the poor who desire riches. But I think he's also speaking to the rich who desire more riches. And they hoard what they have, and they just want more and more and more. In either case, whether you're wealthy or poor, because the Bible, you're not more spiritual if you're poor. I've got news for you. You're not more spiritual if you're wealthy, you're, and, you know, and vice versa. Um, but here is the issue. Do you desire the riches? Is that your focus? Is that, is that your obsession? Proverbs. There's a lot of verses in Proverbs that deal with it, but I'm going to just read a couple of them to you. Proverbs 15:27, "He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, 
but he who hates brides will bribes will live. Not brides, bribes will live. Proverbs twenty eight twenty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs twenty eight twenty two. A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. You can read a lot about riches in the Bible. I'm getting tongue-twisted up here. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's funny how unbelievers can take this verse and they misquote it every time. They say, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It's the love of money, that desire for it, that, 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 that obsession with it. That's the root of all kinds of evil. And some have strayed from their faith. And he's talking about Christians in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Well, that pierce themselves through, it metaphorically means to torture one's, souls, uh, to torture one's soul with sorrows. You know, because there's... Only so much that you and I can love. If your love, uh, excuse me, if you love temporary riches, and that your your pursuit and your pursuit is money, that's going to be your focus. You can't pursue eternal riches. You can only love so much. Your love for your family will suffer. You will miss many opportunities, and also your love for the Lord will suffer. In fact, Jesus even said that in Matthew six twenty four. You can uh, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon. So, going on to verse eleven, he says, "But you, O man of God," he's speaking to Timothy. "But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness." godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. So Paul here is warning Timothy to flee worldly riches and pursue eternal riches. Because you can only do you can only pursue one thing or the other. You can only love one thing or the other. So he says, flee those things and pursue eternal riches. Now in a place of affluence, like I mentioned in Ephesus, a place where there was probably a lot of materialism, a lot of possessions. I would believe that even the believers themselves, because I look in our own culture, it would be tempting for the believer to get caught up in the pursuit of these things. And I think if we were honest with each other, we would admit that from time to time we find ourselves kind of falling into that. We kind of find ourselves trying to, you know, pretty soon, you know, the Lord kind of convicts us and we go, man, I I think I've been kind of, Pursuing that wealth and or pursuing those possessions or materialism. And so I think this is a timely warning for us as well, because in our culture, especially our culture, with all the affluence and all our possessions, and you know, you look at marketing. You know what marketing, the whole basis behind marketing is and advertising is to make you discontent. If you, you, you're, you're miserable because you don't drive that car. You know, you're miserable because you don't have that type of candy bar or whatever. You know, you, that, that's basically, you can boil all that advertising down to it. They're trying to make you miserable. They're trying to make you discontent. They're capitalizing on it. So I think it is very, very applicable to us in our culture. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. 
lay hold of eternal life, or lay hold on eternal life, to which you also were called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul here, again, encouraging Timothy over and over again, the life of faith, it's a battle. It's a fight between our spirit and the world, the flesh and the devil. But guess what? It's a good fight because it leads to eternal life. And Paul warns Timothy to lay hold on eternal life. That means to seize it with both hands. And you think about that. To see, in order to seize eternal life with both hands, you have to let go of whatever else you're holding on to. I remember this one movie. It was a Sylvester Stallone movie. And, uh, you know, he was kind of, he was a rock climber, mountain climber, and he was hanging on to this thing, and he had to make a decision about grabbing this person, letting go, and, you know, you've seen it in some of those action flicks, right? The guy's got to make a decision. He's got to either let go of what he's holding on to and save the person or what, you know, and they, anyways. Um, but that's the concept here. In order to seize eternal life with both hands, you and I need to let it go of what else we're holding on to. And so we have to ask ourselves, man, what am I holding on to this morning? What am I gripping with one hand? I got, I've got one hand in the world that I'm hanging on to this, whatever it is, and, and, and yet I want to hold on to eternal life. Well, guess what? Let go of that and hang on to eternal life. Because it is a fight. It's a battle. And you're going to need both hands for it. Timothy was called by God to the life of faith. And guess what? Even though we're not pastors, well, I am, but you guys aren't. It's still applicable to us because for each one of us, we've been called to, by God to this life of faith. Verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and glory, excuse me, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. I, I could just imagine as Paul's writing this, he's just getting more and more excited and just it's turning into a worship time for Paul, you know, as he's reflecting on the Lord. I don't know if you've ever done that before. But, you know, you start thinking about the Lord or you're writing something all of a sudden, next thing you know, man, God, you're so great. And you start worshiping him. I can imagine that's what Paul is doing here. But Paul says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. God's the creator. It's such an important thing to remember. He has created life. And all these things exist because of His Word. He spoke it all into existence. And so it just gives us the right perspective. But we're in the sight of God. And He knows you are my struggles. He knows the cruel despot you're working for. You know, He knows that you're in a hard and disagreeable condition. He understands it. He sees it. He knows your struggles. He sees our life. He says, and to Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. That's an interesting phrase there, isn't it? Remember when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate? Pilate's asking him all these questions, and Jesus really isn't responding a whole lot, right? He's not like trying to, trying to defend himself so he doesn't go to the cross. He's just basically just standing there before Pontius. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus if he's a king, and Jesus didn't deny the truth about himself. Let me ask you this, or let me not ask you this, but let me encourage you this in this. Don't deny who you are in Christ. 
if you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're not your own. You've been purchased. Your life is not your own anymore. You've been bought. You've been blood bought. And so don't deny who you are in Christ. You're, you're in this world. We're all in this world. We have to go to our jobs. We have to you know, interact with people. We have to buy and sell things. We're, we're in this world, but we're no longer of this world. And we need to start living our life in that reality. And that's what Jesus is. Are you a king? Yeah, yeah I am. I'm a king. Pilate said to Jesus, after he didn't talk for a long time, says, do you know that I have the power to free you? I mean, it was perplexing, Pilate, that Jesus wasn't trying to defend himself. And Jesus replied to him, you would have no power at all if it hadn't been granted to you by the Father. In other words, Pilate, God is sovereign. God's in control. God is all-powerful. Nothing happens to you or I that doesn't, it doesn't slip past the Father. The Father doesn't look down and go, oh, I didn't realize that happened to you. Shoot, I, I just turned away. I was helping a guy over here in India. I turned back over here in the America. And, oh, man, shoot, sorry about that. Nothing slips past God's attention in our lives. It's so important to understand that. That in His sovereignty, and I don't understand some of the things that He allows, but He does allow things. Sometimes they're difficult things. Sometimes they're very hard things. But God loves us. And there's a reason why. You know, Jesus, like I mentioned, he was silent through most of his trial before Pilate. Why? The Bible says because he committed himself to his Father. He trusted his Heavenly Father. And through his actions, because he didn't really... I mean, he said some things to Pilate that probably made Pilate, you know, shudder. But I think it was even more his actions that probably confounded Pilate more. Just that calm confidence, that inner contentment with what was he was going through in his own life. We need that quiet confidence in the love and care of our Heavenly Father. This is, where that, this is going back to that inner satisfaction, that contentment. It finds its source in the love of God. When you understand that God loves you, that He really truly loves you, things are just easier to handle. And they're not, I'm not saying things become easy. But they're easier to handle when you go, you know what, I, I, I don't understand why, but I know that God loves me. And I'm going to trust in his love. That is, that's where that inner contentment, that, that satisfaction comes from. Paul says, keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ is appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. You know, we can keep that confession and fight that good fight of faith when you and I realize that Jesus is returning soon and he's bringing his reward within him. I don't know if you got discouraged this week listening to the different Supreme Court decisions and stuff. It's like, man, why, why are they you know, going the direction that they're going? But you know what? Jesus is on the throne. God's on the throne. And he is returning. And I think he's returning soon. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I can be upset. And I am upset. I'm not, I'm not thrilled with what's, what's happening. But I also know that that this hasn't slipped past God's control either. He's still on the throne. And uh, man may try to define marriage, and man may try to, uh, uh, you know, to, I really see that persecution is coming down the road even sooner for us as believers than we probably even realize. But we have to live by what the Bible says and the truths of Scripture. And so... You know, Jesus is returning soon. The Bible says he's bringing his reward with him. 
So we just need to be eternally focused. We're still in this world. I'm still going to vote. I'm still going to participate in the democratic process. But this isn't my home. And, and I'm not going to pin my hopes on some guy who's going to, you know, legislatively change things. They're not. Okay? This world is heading towards destruction faster and faster. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slippery slope, and we've, we've already on the, we're already over the, over the edge, and we're just going to start speeding up. But that's, and maybe that scares you, but you know what? It doesn't scare me because it's like, you know what? I just know the Bible is true, and, and now I'm going to start reading Revelation even more, you know, with, with one, one hand in the Bible and one hand reading the news and going, man, it's, it's happening. I'm seeing it. So it's an exciting time to be alive. So Jesus, he says, he will appear in his own time. You know, we don't know the day or the hour of Christ's return, but God does. And similarly, we don't know God's timing for other things that occur in our life. We don't know how long whatever we're going through is going to last. But you know what? God is in control, and God has his own timing. And again, can you just rely on that? Can you trust in that? Can you trust in him? You know, there's a lot of things that God doesn't reveal to us concerning his timing, but there's one thing that he does reveal to us. There's one thing that we can know about God's timing. I don't know when Jesus is returning. I think it's very soon. But right now, I do know that right here, right now, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. All that we know about is today. And so you and I, we should live in the moment. That sounds like a commercial. Live in the moment. But as Christians, we really should be. Living today, living our lives today for Christ. You know, beyond tomorrow, I, I can't, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that God's in control and He's in charge. So He who is the blessed and only potentate and King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. You know, to fight a good fight, to stay in a battle, to not surrender you need to know who you're taking your orders from and who you're fighting for it just it just helps you know um well we're taking orders from the blessed and only potentate king of kings and lord of lords in other words there is no one more powerful more glorious more majestic than the lord jesus christ who's called you to the life of a christian following him he alone has immortality. That's a very good thing to remember because men, even very powerful men, the Bible says they're just like the flower of the field. They might bloom. They might look very impressive one moment, but sooner or later they're going to disappear. They're going to vanish. God alone has immortality. Dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, and yet he has chosen to reveal himself to you and I through Jesus Christ. And he's intimately aware of our lives and involved and in control. Verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. That's a very interesting verse there. First of all, command those who are rich in this present age. If, if there's a present age, that must mean that there's some other ages. And of course, the Bible does speak to about that. There are ages I'm saying it plural, too. There are ages to come besides the age that you and I now live in. And it's important to be thinking beyond this age because life for you and I as believers is going to continue beyond this age into the next age and the next age after that. So if you're wealthy in this present age, 
Paul says, don't be haughty. He doesn't say don't be wealthy. He says, just don't be haughty about it. Don't be high-minded or proud. And don't trust in uncertain riches. Because as fast as you get it, as soon as you have it, as soon as it can disappear. You know, before World War II, one of the things that, that the, the Jews throughout, throughout their existence for 2,000 years, they've been persecuted in so many places because God, for some reason, has blessed them. They've been, they're good businessmen. They're inventors. They're, just, they're, they're, they're intellectual. They're, I mean, they've done so much uh, down through the years. So many inventors were, Israel, you know, were Jewish people. Um, and so that has made a lot of people in the world jealous. And resentful to them. And hateful towards them. And I don't remember why I was going to bring that up to <laughs> uh, Oh, I remember now. So, a lot, there were a lot of wealthy Jews in Europe. And when World War II happened, and the Nazis took over, that wealth that they had... And they might have had it in banks or maybe in, in, they had it in art, you know, fine art and all this stuff. That literally overnight, pretty much overnight, was just seized from them by the Nazis. So don't think that can't happen here. Where, you know, the wealth that you and I have that, you know, like you say, well, I've got this retirement thing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm secure. You know what? Nothing's secure. The government, they, if Congress can figure out a way to take our money, they'll do it. <laughs> you know, if they can figure out a way to do it, they'll do it. Um, so don't trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the living God. And again, he's a living God. He's alive. He's, in, he's active in your and my lives. Who gives us richly all things to enjoy. I love that. You know, God not only gives us our bare necessities. He knows we need food. He knows we need clothing. He knows we need shelter. And he, and he gives us those things that we need. But he goes beyond that and blesses us with comforts and things to enjoy. Don't, be, don't feel guilty about the things that God's blessed you with. But be thankful because he has blessed you with them. And be willing to share with what he has blessed you with. And are you content with what he has blessed you with? Or are your eyes on more? That's a struggle for each one of us. Are we content with what we have or are we and what he's blessed us with? Or are we looking around and looking for what we don't have? Enjoy what the Lord has richly blessed you with. If the Lord's blessed you financially, good job, whatever, good home, good running car, <laughs> that, can be a, that can be a real blessing sometimes because... You know, I've got a couple children in, that are dealing with car issues in the West Coast. And it's like I would love to go over and help them, but it's like I can't. And I don't have the money to send them all kinds of money. I'm, you know, so we'll pray for them. <laughs> Basically, I can't help you. So that, that's something. When the Lord blesses you with those things, man, enjoy what the Lord has blessed you. Don't feel guilty about it, but don't get prideful either. And be willing to share. Verse 18 let them do good that they that they may be rich in good works ready to give willing to share storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life this is how you send your riches ahead of you by being rich in good works by being ready to give and that word ready to give means ready or free to impart liberal i mean you're just ready to bless people Willing to share. That means inclined to make others sharers in one's own possessions. Inclined to impart free and giving liberal. I look around this fellowship and I see so many of you that are so 
you have the gift of giving. You are so. It's like I can just I could read off all your names, but I'm not gonna. But you know, this is how you lay up a treasure ahead of you. I like this. It says, "Laying up a treasure in heaven, which will be for themselves to enjoy to all eternity." Whereas what they lay up here is for others, for their children or friends, and sometimes for strangers. And they know not who, whether a wise man or a fool, yes, even for enemies. You know, you lay up these treasures here on earth. You know, my father-in-law, he had that beautiful car. I mean, it was, it was a 1971 Buick Skylark. It had 37,000 original miles on it. And he was the original owner. It was a convertible. I mean, the thing was, it was like it just rolled off the showroom floor. And, you know, I'm sure he had plans for what he was, who he was going to pass it on and everything. And, and uh, he had money in bank and different things. And, and he died. And I'm, I'm positive, beyond a doubt, where the money went and where his possessions went. If he was alive, that wouldn't have been his choice. But he didn't have a choice. He's dead, <laughs> you know. And uh, and so for you and I, those things that we store up, you don't know. It's, it's you might say, "Well, I'm 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 saving this up for my kids." Well, yeah, maybe, <laughs> you know. So we need to let go of the things that we're grasping on too tightly, and lay hold on eternal life. Again, letting go of those things of the world and grasping eternal life. Verse twenty: O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it. Some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. You can kind of just sense Paul's heart there, man. Oh, Timothy. I mean, he's just really trying to encourage this young man in the faith. He's trying to, he, he understands the temptations. I mean, he pastored there in, in Ephesus. He started the church, so he knows he knows what life is like there. He understands the temptations. Maybe he was even tempted in those same ways. And so here his heart is just Timothy. You know, guard what was committed to your trust. What was committed to his trust? Well, you say, well, he was a pastor, and so that ministry was entrusted to him. And, that, and that's true. He's a steward of the ministry that was um, entrusted to him. But I think it's more than that. I think it's the gospel. The gospel's been entrusted. And, and so in that case... It, the gospel's been entrusted to each one of us. We need to guard what has been entrusted with us. Because one day, as stewards, we're going to have to give an account. Not for judgment. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, your sins have been judged on the cross. You're not going to be judged for judgment, but you're going to be rewarded for what you've done with the gospel that was entrusted to you. He says, avoid profane and idle babblings, which merely means empty, useless talk and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Again, even in the early church, there were so many false teachers, and some of the stuff that they said, it was like there was a little bit of truth, and then there was an error. You know, a little bit of truth, and there was a twist and stuff. And what Timothy really needed and what you and I need is discernment. And, and, you know, being able to take God's word and look at what people are twisting and saying, you know what, that's not what God's word says. And then standing up and withdrawing yourself from those people. Uh, it's easy to stray from our faith if we're not careful. So it's so much more important for you and I to heed the word of God and be able to discern between what's the word of God and the word of men. Because sometimes it's, you know, you really need that discernment. So. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this morning, this teaching. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that Paul uh, gave Timothy. And Lord, as we just examine briefly what Ephesus was like, Father, I, I know that we look at the United States of America, and Father, I, I, we, I see the correlation uh, in our culture. And so I see the warnings and the temptations, Lord. And, and uh, Lord, we don't have slaves in our day, but Lord, we do have difficult conditions, and the principle still applies to each one of us. And so, Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that we're encouraged, Father, to start letting go of those things that we're clinging to. And, and Lord, that we would lay hold on eternal life. And, Father, that, uh, Lord, that we would have in mind the fact that uh, there, is, there are more ages coming beyond this one that we're living in right now. And, Father, that we might be planning and, and, and living for eternity and living for you, Lord Jesus. So we thank you for those reminders this morning. I pray your blessing upon each and every person here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.